Good morning again. Church, you sounded really great in worship this morning. Church, you are beautiful this morning. So as we conclude our series on organic outreach this morning, it, it seemed good to me to spend some time discussing the blessing and the reward and the joy of seeing others coming to faith in Christ. So this morning I plan to take a look at Luke chapter 15, the teaching and the stories of Jesus as he explores this topic of joy and seeing others come to know him. Jesus drives home the point that when someone comes to him, there is cause for much rejoicing. In fact, he uses three different stories to just pound that home. But it's not limited to the joy that we sense. But it's actually a joy that, can I say this, that rocks the heavens. That rocks the heavens. Jesus said that when one person turns to him, even the angels in heaven rejoice. They explode in joy. Now, that seems to me to be a joy that's worth exploring this morning. So as I thought about what image I would use for the PowerPoint this morning, a million ideas went through my mind. I, I scanned a photo website that I normally use, and I came up with lots of pictures of little kids that were smiling and little kids that were holding balloons and pictures of joy, people jumping up and down for joy and, and, and singing songs of praise to the to the sunset, and they were all indeed pictures of joy, but <clears throat> I have to be honest with you, none of them really stirred my emotions for joy. So as I scrolled through our family pictures for this assignment, <laughs> there were lots of images reflecting joy. No it's, no, it's not. I'll make my point. I'll make my point. Kids, grandkids, vacation memories, and it all came down to our grandson, Jake, or our dog, Willow. <laughs> now, if you don't... Okay. Sandy's not here to keep me on track this morning. She's in the nursery, so bear with me. Sandy and I went with Jake. We worked on this together. And the image reflects the joy of Jake, of who he is. The exuberant life of Jake and a family day that we will never forget. You can't see it in the picture, but he's actually sitting on a horse. And we were all riding horses that day, and Jake was Mr. Cowboy. And the image, image reflects the joy of who Jake is and the memory of that day. In light of that, joy for me includes not only family, but memories they also include times up here on the stage when, when parents are dedicating their children to the Lord. For me, that's a, that's a time of, of the deepest, most profound joy. And we're going to do that in the next few weeks. Or when I officiate the, the wedding of a couple who are seeking to, to build their new life together on Jesus Christ, I don't think there's any greater joy. Even as a pastor watching the bride come down the aisle, let alone the groom, there's nothing better than seeing two people come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to build a life together. And so if I'd have known, Ishmael, if you would have told me, I would have put your guys' picture up there this morning for a picture of pure joy, what it is to be engaged and to dedicate your life together to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then there are the times when, when you're talking to somebody and you're sharing scripture and, and you watch their eyes light up and you watch the, the light bulb go on in their head and the Holy Spirit has just revealed the truth to them. There's nothing like pure joy in that moment. And then finally, there's probably the greatest joy is when, when you see someone come to know Jesus for the first time. When someone bows their head and says, yes, Lord, be my Lord and Savior. In, in about an hour, I'm going to escape and, and go to Oakwood Church down the road, and my granddaughter is going to be baptized this morning. No greater joy than to see your kids coming to know Jesus. And through this process of, of trying to decipher joy and what it means, I've realized that joy is a rather personal thing. The images I choose or the images that flood my memory all have a personal connection. What stirs me in the depths of my heart is something that means a lot to me. It, it's something that reflects my life and it reflects my convictions and, and my passions. Joy is something that reflects a fulfilled heart, something that has just welled up inside of me. And so I ask the question to you this morning, what is a good image of pure joy? If you had to pick one, if you had to pick an image to represent joy, what would it be? And I'll stop here. What would it be? Somebody say something. The birth of your first child. Oh, yes. Yes. Somebody else. Graduating from college. Day of joy. A, a child just enjoying life with a belly laugh. Excellent. Excellent. Anyone else? After a long adoption process, your Indian grandchildren running towards you at the airport. Beautiful, beautiful image. Back here. A picture of someone who's not with us anymore, okay? All the, all the memories that come with that. I don't know, just one. Okay, come on. Okay, parents' 45th wedding anniversary party. What a time of great joy and celebration that is. You see, when we, when we think about joy, it's all a personal thing. It all has a connection to what has, what's fulfilling in my heart. What is it that wells up in your heart to cause you to just burst open with joy? So let's, let's take that idea one step further. It seems evident to me that we all have a different memory bank for joy different experiences and different motivations for it. The question this morning concerns the heart of God and what stirs him to joy. To hear Jesus describe it in Luke chapter 15, God is moved to joy when he sees his people turn towards him. The description of Jesus concerning God's joy has everything to do with our discussion on organic outreach over the last few weeks what it means to reach out in our communities, in our networks, in our families, in our friends with the good news of Jesus Christ and, and to be witnesses. This chapter, Luke chapter 15, has everything to do. It's a perfect combination to our series on outreach. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 15, turn with me if you would. 
Luke chapter 15. I'll start right at verse 1. Let me read this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and and eats with them. We'll stop there just for the moment. Just two verses this morning. So we've all learned to keep our opinions to ourselves these days. The, The PC police are everywhere. And one of their favorite accusations is to condemn anyone who makes a distinction among people. If someone is different than you and you make an observation of any kind concerning that person, you are accused of a multitude of phobias, biases, and prejudice. So this PC rule has the effect of shutting down conversations with a simple exchange of ideas. Keep your opinions to yourself. No distinctions, no no, no nothing. But for me, the question remains for us. What do we do with people that are different than us? You guys are stealing my sermon here. (laughs) Are we as blind as we like to think we are concerning the differences of people? Things that strike us as different? So what are those things to you? Is it the style of someone's clothing? Is it the color of their hair? Is it the number of body piercings or tattoos that stand out? Maybe somebody's different if they live in a different part of town, a different neighborhood. What if they they go to a different school or they run with a different group of people? In our generation, there seems to be no end to things that make us different. So I'm going to suggest that none of us are as blind to those differences as as we like to think. We all have a line to cross, and in true Minnesota fashion, what do we say? That's different. Right? Come on, talk to me. Those of you from Minnesota, we say, well, well, that's different. (laughs) And we really mean it in a derogatory sense, don't we? We really mean, I don't understand that. I don't like that, and I'm not sure I'm going to accept that. That's different. And so as Luke chapter 15 opens, Luke gives us the background of this situation here, and he says, you know what? There were tax collectors and sinners, and they were all drawing near to Jesus. There's two distinct groups of people in the scene, the religious leaders and the, the, the tax collectors and the sinners. Our focus tends towards the religious leaders. That's what, we, that's what our, our thoughts are drawn to. We, we recognize they're grumbling. And they're grumbling about the other group of people. And they're grumbling about the way Jesus interacts with them. He's accepting of them. He's, he's embracing their fellowship and their time with him. He's saying, come, come, let's walk together. And it's driving the religious leaders nuts. And frankly, I think that's probably where our attention goes in this, in this context. You see, the other group, the other group besides the religious leaders is what we might call the motley crew. Luke describes them as tax collectors, and that's, that is a person of, of low value in their culture. Their corruption is, is epic, and nobody has any esteem for tax collectors whatsoever. So Luke describes them as tax collectors and sinners, and, and that idea of sinner would be an umbrella term for any kind of riffraff, according to the religious leaders. 
And if you listen to the religious leaders and you put it in today's terms, what would we call them? Deplorable. To use today's term, we would call them deplorable. So the tension between these two groups was thick. And I want you just to imagine just for a moment, if you would, what it would be like if, if the different person that you don't understand, the different person that you even dislike, were to walk in this room this morning and they were to sit next to you right now, what would you do? You might wonder, why are you here? You don't belong here. You would question their motivation. You would, you would question their worship. Their presence might even, I'm, I'm going to walk out on a limb here and say, it would disrupt your own personal worship. It might even make you jealous of your space. And if we were to dig down deep in our hearts, we might even wish that they wouldn't show up at all. That was the case for the religious leaders. They couldn't stand the fact, the fact that these deplorables were standing between them and Jesus. They were in the way. But not Jesus. Listen very closely to the accusation. Look, look at this, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And eats with them. This, you see, this isn't, just, this isn't just an accusation that he's hanging out with people that we don't appreciate. It's, it's more than that. When, when, when Luke tells us that, that he receives them, it means that he welcomes them. It means that he embraces them, even with all the differences, even with the, the shunning and the, and the you're not welcome here idea that's permeating the atmosphere. Jesus, on the other hand, brings them in and worships or welcomes them. Jesus loves being with these deplorables. And the religious leaders see that, and they have nothing but contempt. Do you see that in these two verses? Nothing but contempt. Now, there's one more thing that we need to know about this, this context, this, this scene. And this is a case where the chapter headings and the verses get in our way. Because we need to go back to the last teaching of Jesus in chapter 14. He's talking about what it costs to follow him. He's saying the cost is tremendous to follow after me. And he ends his teaching by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The cost for discipleship, for following after me, is your life. And so that's when Luke dives in and says, now the tax collectors and sinners were, get, were, were coming to Jesus. These deplorables came to Jesus looking for something. We can't miss that. They heard the cost of following him, and they still wanted more. They were at the very least curious about what Jesus was offering to them. And listen to this. Jesus was only too happy to feed their curiosity and to meet them where they were. You see, there are times when our view of people is at odds with God's view of people. Very, very often and too quickly, 
we move right to judgment. We move right to arrogance. We move right to self-righteousness as we look at other people. We make value judgments on what somebody looks like, what a first impression is. We make value judgments on how to, and who to spend our time with, who to spend our energy around. We move right to it. And like the rest of our culture, we categorize people. We put everyone in this camp or that camp or this camp or that camp. We love to categorize people. But brothers and sisters, I want us to take away from from these two simple context verses. Jesus calls us to a different way. Nowhere are we led to believe that Jesus accommodated sin. That's a big worry for us. He did not accommodate sin, and he didn't compromise his truth so that he could welcome them into his presence. There was none of that. And he didn't lighten up on his teaching. He didn't throttle back on his teaching because these people were around him. But we do see clearly that Jesus loved everyone, and he invited everyone to come and bring their curiosity, to bring their needs to him, and to come and walk with him. You see, the blessed principle that we've been talking about the last few weeks has led us right into these verses, right into Luke chapter 15. We, we, the blessed principle, we begin with prayer. We begin with prayer that God would open the eyes of those that we're speaking with and building relationships with. We, we, we pray that God would draw, him, draw them to himself. And the L of the blessed principle, we listen to those around us. And then, and then what's the next one? I'm sorry, I don't remember the next one. Eat. And what's the accusation against Jesus? He eats with them. But eating with someone is a, is a, is a, is a time of fellowship. It's a time of drawing near. It's a time of building relationships. And that's the very thing Jesus was doing. It's the very thing that those who were self-righteous and arrogant and judgmental, it's the very thing that they accused him of. You are eating with those people. But we're called to gather around the table and invite all who will come. You see, eating together, blessing others by prayer and listening and serving and sharing Christ, that's exactly what Christ is calling us to be about. So that's Jesus' perspective on people. Let's go one step farther. Jesus' perspective on joy. Let me continue to read. Um, the response of Jesus in this situation was to teach them about what happens when someone comes to Christ. To teach them, this is, this is the result of hanging around with deplorables who are curious and are wanting to know more about who God is. But instead of saying it straight out, Jesus to- chose to use three parables, and they're very, they're very familiar parables to us, there are three stories, there are three images that reveal that which gives God the greatest joy. So this morning, I'd like to look at two of the parables. And the third one is the, is the parable of the prodigal son, but let me read beginning at verse 3. So this is how Jesus responds to their grumbling. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, 
He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Isn't that a great picture? We've all seen artist images of Jesus with a lamb wrapped around his shoulders and with beaming joy going home. But That's the picture right here. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Second parable. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Over one sinner who repents. In each case, something was lost. A sheep and a coin. The master sought the lost with all their heart and with all, with all their, their, their passion was to find the sheep, to find the coin. And the finding of the lost was an occasion for celebration and joy. First, it was a, a celebration of joy in the heart of the, that, of the shepherd and the woman. And then they poured out that joy into neighbors and friends and anybody who would listen, come and rejoice with me. But Jesus goes on to say that there's another level of joy that's happening here. When someone is lost and they are found, heaven rejoices. I can't even begin to put a picture around that. All the angels of heaven, myriads and myriads, as we are told in Revelation, are bursting forth in song and joy over one single person who repents. I can't begin to imagine what that scene in heaven looks like. It's all three levels of joy in the individual, in the community, and in heaven. So I have to ask the question, what's the cause of this exuberant joy? And in each case... It was repentance. As Jesus described the prodigal son in verse 32, he said this, he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. That just sums up the celebration in heaven. You see, the the joy hinges on the concept and the action of repentance. And so now I'm asking the question, what does the idea of repentance involve? The word appears in the New Testament some 56 different times in in two different forms. And repentance is a common theme all throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts and and the epistles. The concept of repentance is woven all throughout the New Testament. And it's both a verb and a noun. It's It's an action and it's an attitude. It's both a result and a condition or a state. So how do we define it? How do we define repentance? It's, it, I wonder if sometimes it's not part of our Christian ease, and we just blow by the word and we just say, well, you need to repent or we need to have an attitude of repentance. And Have we ever stopped to think what repentance actually means? What is it about repentance that makes God rejoice on his throne and makes the, heavens of, the angels of the heaven rejoice? What is it about repentance? The action, I believe, comes in three different steps. And I... I've put three different words to this to, to, to illustrate each step. And, and they're my words. I don't know. I've not seen them explained like this. 
So take them as you will. But I think there's three steps to this idea of of repentance. So these three steps are, are both an action that we take, and the three steps are also an attitude that is constantly at work in us. Constantly, even even as believers, this is an attitude that needs to run through us daily. Let's look at it. The first idea is that of seeing. Imagine if you're sitting on a large hill. Just if we could clear away the trees and we could look out on the on the Minnesota River Valley, that's what I'm talking about. And in the image of this valley is is the panorama of your life. You can look out over your life. And as you scan that panorama, looking out over that huge valley, you see all the aspects of your life. You see the relationships. You see your job. You see school. You see family. You see friends. You see hobbies. You see passions. And littered across the panorama of your life are all the victories and all the mistakes that you've made. And if you look closer at this panorama of your life, you see the workings of your heart. You see the angry blowouts. You see the love that was given away, and you see the, the love that was lost. You see, you see the brokenness that, that is part of, your, part of the panorama of your life. You see the loss that is part of the panorama of your life. And maybe it gets worse in your story, in your panorama. Maybe it gets worse, and, and you see abuse by others. Maybe you see something that has made you a victim. But the closer you look out at the panorama of your life and you see all those, all those incidents, all those memories, all those, all, those, all those things that make up your life, you realize that you need to look closer in the depths of your heart. And you realize that the thoughts of your heart are not exactly what people see. And you recognize your own depravity. And when you see the panorama of your life, you realize... I have, I have no control. I have no control over the circumstances of my life. I have no control over anything. So you see, repentance starts with a thorough examination and assessment of the panorama of your life, the panorama of your heart. The Bible has given us a conclusion of this assessment. According to John, 1 John 1, verse 8, John tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, any honest assessment of our life's panorama has to lead us to the fact that we are broken, that we are helpless, and that we are And the second step, the second word that I have chosen here is, is that of turning. See, the next step on repentance takes this honest assessment because we can't leave it right there. All we would be is depressed if we left it right there. The next step of repentance takes this honest assessment and turns away from what we see in our panorama. Repentance is turning. You see, we can't control or fix our circumstances. We can't heal our diseases. We can't purify our hearts. And so we turn away and we recognize our desperate need for help. And more than that, this turning means that we agree with God that we're in trouble. 
And we agree with God that we can't go on without him. And to put it in biblical terms, we need a savior. We need a savior. And that's, that's what turning is. Another word for this, turning, is confession. And it simply means, the, the idea of confession simply means I agree with God. I agree with God's uh, assessment that I can't fix this, that I, I'm plagued by sin, that I'm plagued by lack of wisdom in my life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I agree with God. That's simply confession. I confess my sins. God, you're right. You're right. So you agree with God's assessment that you're lost in your sin and you need a Savior. In other words, repenting means turning away from the panorama of our life and turning towards God in salvation. It's a realization that something has got to change, that help is needed. And then the third step, I've chosen the word moving. I looked for a better word, but this captures the idea of direction. This captures the idea of, okay, now I've looked at, done an honest assessment of the panorama of my life. I've decided to turn away from that and seek God's help. And now God is calling us to move in his direction. And to continue with our metaphor, we, we choose to walk towards a new horizon, a new panorama in our life. In theological terms, I look to the cross of Jesus Christ where he paid the penalty for my sins. He paid the price that I would have had to pay had I continued in my own, my own panorama. But more than that, I look to Jesus for the promise of new life that he alone offers to me. Repentance means that I change direction. Repentance means that I move towards Jesus with all of my life. It means I dedicate my life to him and I turn my life over to his lordship. You see, when this process of repentance concludes, when the attitude of repentance settles over our heart, that's when salvation comes. That's when, when the Holy Spirit completes his work. And I believe that even repentance, we're putting it in terms of what you do, what I do, but the reality is that even repentance is a gift from God. Even repentance is a gift from God. But when that repentance takes shape in our lives, when that attitude of repentance settles over us, then salvation comes, and that's when the angels in heaven throw a party. That's when, that's when it all comes out. That which was lost is found. And brothers and sisters, that's why Jesus hung around with broken people. That's why Jesus could look past the sin. And we know he of all people took sin seriously. He gave his life for it. He gave his life for my sin, for your sin, for the sins of the whole world. He went to the cross and he knew he was going to the cross. So he did not take sin lightly. But that's why he could look past it for the moment in the lives of the people around him. He could look past their poor choices. He could look past the panoramas that, only, that, that others only focused on. You see, when we're judging and when we're self-righteous, when we're arrogant, we're looking at people, we're putting people in categories, we're just looking at their panorama. 
and we're choosing to pick out the things in their panorama that I don't like. So we judge. But Jesus, brothers and sisters, looked past the panorama, and he offered hope, and he offered life, and he offered a new direction. And the angels would throw a party when people would come to him. And when the deplorables came to him, they were all over this road of repentance. Some of them were, were staunchly against any sort of repentance, anything that Jesus would say. Some of them were curious. You, you see, if you, if you lay it out as a road, a spiritual journey, some of them, they were sprinkled all throughout the spiritual journey. Some were ready to come right then and there. I repent, Jesus. Lead me to your new life. Lead me to your kingdom. And others were way back here. But Jesus chose to walk that road with them to lead them to repentance that would result in the salvation of their souls and their lives. Jesus chose to walk alongside. For Jesus' pure joy was found in the image of a shepherd carrying a lost sheep home. For Jesus, it was the, it was the picture of a widow holding up a coin like this and saying, I have found my lost coin, a coin that meant the world to her. You see, joy comes when a heart takes a step of faith in Jesus and when a heart rests in an attitude of repentance and absolute confidence and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is joy for the Lord Jesus Christ and and a handful of angels in heaven as well. You see, this, this act of repentance and this ongoing attitude of repentance rises up to heaven and it results in all, all, all of heaven rejoicing. And I think that's something worth taking home today. So what do we do with that? Turn with me over to 1 John, back by the book of Revelation. 1 John. We read this last week as well, but I want to focus on one thought in this, in this passage we talked about witness and we talked about our testimony last week. We read this passage. <clears throat> but I'd like to read it again as we, as, we, as we apply this to our own lives. That which was from the first John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And here's the thought, verse 4. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. And it depends on which translation of that of that verse you're looking at, it might say your joy may be complete. The commentators or the translators are a little mixed as whether it's our joy or your joy. But the bottom line is when repentance moves through us, when the Holy Spirit is working in all of our lives, there is no greater joy than to see God at work in the life of someone else. No greater joy. And the Apostle John said so. We have told you this. We have shared our story with you that your joy may be complete and with us to come into the fellowship of the kingdom. 
If Jesus took joy in helping people down the road of repentance and salvation, if his and heaven's great joy was that of blessing, was, was, was that of seeing someone come to Christ, then shouldn't that be our joy as well? Shouldn't that be our joy as well? If you visit our sister church in Romania, you will learn that the word for a Bible-believing Christian, the word for an evangelical in Romanian, is the word pokait. And the word pokait means repenter. It's a label that they put on people who follow Jesus Christ. And so for us this morning and for our sister church in Romania, it's a, it's a badge of honor. But in, out in the secular world, when I climbed in a, a, a taxi with somebody and, and let them know in the course of conversation, well, I'm, I'm at this church or that church or whatever, and I'm here to share Christ with people, whatever our story, our conversation led to, he would look at me, inevitably the taxi driver would look at me and say, ah, yes, pokeit, yes, pokeit. He didn't mean it in a nice way at all. You're a repenter. What a title it is for us as followers of Christ that we would be known as repenters. You see, we are those who have looked over the panorama of our lives and we've found ourselves wanting, sinful, lost. We are those who have counted the cost and we have repented and we have given our lives to Jesus Christ. So may it also be said of us that we are those who put our own agendas and perspectives aside in order to come alongside those who are not like us, the broken, the rejected, the deplorables. May be said of us that we love unconditionally those we encounter and patiently walk down the road of repentance with them. And may we be those who take joy from seeing others come to Christ. May our joy be full. May our joy rock the heavens. May angels burst into praise for the, for the finding of the lost, and may the heart of God take joy in us and those who come to salvation through our testimony. So as we come to the end of our organic outreach series, it seems entirely appropriate to me that we end with a time of prayer. And I think it needs to be a time of of commitment and a time of dedication. And so for that reason, as I pray this morning, I'm going to ask for people, for you to come forward. And let me offer an invitation to you this morning. If you this morning are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not made that, that step over from repentance into receiving Jesus, then I'm asking you to come forward this morning and take that step. You see, what often happens in this process of repentance, the three steps that we talked about, is I look over the panorama of my life and I realize, man, this is a mess. And I need to look this over and I need to, I need to go in a different direction. But then we realize we need to take that step towards the cross. And all of a sudden, the ground gets a little shaky and it's an unknown thing. And I don't know, where, I don't know what's going to happen on the other side of that. And so what do I do? I go back over here where it's warm and comfortable. It's a mess, but it's a comfortable mess. And so this morning, if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to come forward. 
I'm going to ask you to take courage and follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit this morning and come up here and give your life to Jesus Christ, to repent, and to, and to enter into the broad panorama of the new life that he offers to you. I will invite you to come up this morning if you are already in Jesus Christ and there's something that you're holding on to, if there's something that you need to repent of and you know what it is. And I believe here this morning that the Holy Spirit is at work because we've prayed and asked him to come and he comes anyway. But we've, op- we've opened up the doors and said, Holy Spirit, do your work. And if that's true, if the Holy Spirit is here doing his work, then he's tapping somebody on the shoulder this morning and he's saying, Today is the day we need to take care of this. Today is the day that you need to leave this behind. Out in the panorama of your life, there's a, there's a pile of rubble over there that we need to take care of. And so in the context of repentance, in the context of, you see, I, it's not just that which is lost, it's that which re, any of us, anytime we repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's joy in heaven. So I'm challenging you this morning. If the Holy Spirit is tapping you on your shoulder and saying, come on, let's deal with this, then I'm asking you to come forward this morning and repent and take the new life that Jesus Christ is offering to you. And then thirdly, if the Holy Spirit is here moving among us, I believe that God is stirring in us and it has been stirring in us over the last few weeks to be committed to reaching our world for Jesus Christ. And I believe that that we have been called, we have been challenged by Scripture, we've been challenged by one another, we've been challenged by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ for whoever we encounter today, tomorrow, this week, for building relationships with our neighbors for the purpose of being witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would like to pray a prayer of commissioning for us this morning, a commissioning prayer for all of us as evangelists to go out into the world to conclude our series this morning. Can we do that? I'm asking you to come forward if any of those things apply to you this morning, and we are going to pray. I'm asking the worship team to come forward. There you go. If, if you would like to come forward this morning, I invite you to come now. And as you come, as, as, uh, if you'd like me or one of the elders to pray for you, we would like to do that this morning as well to help you cross over that step, that bridge. I invite you to come. I invite you to come. Lord Jesus, when we read in Luke chapter 15, the first parable, we recognize that it's, it's about the lost sheep, but it more it's, it's about your joy. And if we look closely at the parable of the lost sheep and, and both of the other parables, we realize that the stories are really about you because you are pursuing us. You are calling us. You are searching for us. You are inviting us to come 
and to, and to, to put aside those things that hinder us, to, to, for, to confess our sin and to, and to walk in the newness of life, walk in the forgiveness that you offer to us. So, Lord Jesus, we, we come to you in your name, the great pursuer of lost souls. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, to rescue us. So for those who have not received you as Lord and Savior this morning, Lord Jesus, I ask you that, that, that you would so move in their hearts that today would be the day that new life comes. That today would be the day that we look at the panorama of our lives and we realize I'm lost and I need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. May that be the prayer of all those this morning who do not yet know you. May they step over the threshold into faith and newness of life. For all of us, Lord Jesus, all of us who, are, who, who have invited you into our lives and, and, and we walk with you, and yet, and yet there are things in our life we are, we're, we're, not, we're not complete and we're not made whole and we're not experiencing all that you have for us until we get to heaven. This transforming process is always going on in our lives. So, Lord Jesus, for those of us this morning who have, are withholding something, holding it back, would, would you... Would you unblock that? Would you give us the courage to take that step forward this morning? Would you give us the the wisdom, the insight, the courage to take that step towards you, to repent, to renounce those things, to confess, you know what, God, this isn't of you. Confess that and turn towards you, Lord Jesus. Man, it's heavy. It's a heavy burden to carry when we know that there's something that needs to be cast off to be repented of and we still continue to carry it. Today is the day to leave it at the cross. Finally, Lord Jesus, I pray this morning. I pray this morning that that you you would empower us as you have called us to do and called us to be, and that is to be witnesses for your namesake. Lord, we dedicate ourselves for your purpose. We dedicate ourselves to your joy of seeing others who are lost come to know you. So would you empower us, equip us, encourage us as we, as we go out into the world, as we go out through those doors this morning and we encounter a world that is lost, a world that desperately needs you. May we be your ambassadors. May we be your witnesses. May we be, as, as the Apostle John said, that which we have seen and touched and heard, that which we have experienced, that which we have walked in, we offer to you. May that be our testimony. Lord, embolden us to proclaim your name to whoever comes across our path. May you find us gentle, patient, and always willing to come alongside and to love unconditionally and to help others down the road of repentance until they come to you. So, Lord Jesus, we we give ourselves to you this morning. We dedicate ourselves to your glory, for your purpose, for your kingdom. We do it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?